are delighted to do that. We've sung some very prompting and compelling songs, haven't we already? Those messages have truly been encouraging and uplifting. And for the next few moments, could I invite your attention to the question that I've asked you to consider as listed on the wall behind me? A question that relates to the scene unfolded in John chapter 2. You may notice as we proceed to look at an introductory slide, I've simply asked you to reflect briefly on this. Isn't it amazing to consider the various miracles as recorded within the pages of the New Testament? And those miracles illustrate in such dramatic character the power that the Lord possessed. Power over, for example, things like weather. Jesus could still a storm and bring it to instant calm and tranquility as He did in Mark chapter 4. On another occasion, He demonstrated such mastery over quantity by feeding 5,000 men, not counting men, women and children, with nothing but five loaves and two fish, as recorded in John chapter 6. On other occasions, He could heal those that were blind and those that had other physical infirmities. He could even, of course, raise the dead, as He did in John chapter 11. But I say all of that to say that the various miracles of the Lord provide themselves a remarkable set of studies that encourage one's faith and remind us that with God all things are possible, Matthew 19, 26. But it's none of them that I would ask you to consider with me today. The very first miracle the Lord ever performed is the one that is before us in John chapter 2. I'd like to read the opening 11 verses of that chapter and then we'll devote our lesson to consider various particulars of it, especially the question I've asked you in the title. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and His disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto them, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said, saith unto, the, unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth His glory, and His disciples believed on Him. Those references in the opening 11 verses of John chapter 2 have prepared us to spend just a moment and reflect upon the setting of the text. And then we'll use the remainder of our time to address the question we asked of ourselves. As far as the setting, doesn't it begin like this? We have reference to a little village known as Cana. 
it's a bit interesting, it seems to me, that the only New Testament book that makes reference to the little village of Cana is the Gospel of John. It's the only one. We encounter it here as the place or setting of the Lord's first miracle. It'll also be the setting for the second one in John 4, verse 46. Oddly enough, it's also mentioned in the last chapter of the book in John 21 as the hometown of Nathaniel. Other than that, it's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. But it's a bit intriguing that with those references, we now revisit the fact that there was a marriage feast taking place in Cana and Jesus' mother Mary was there. Not only that, but Jesus Himself had been invited and so too had His disciples. This does indicate then that this particular invitation was extended to them and they considered, of course, the importance of arriving and being present at that time. But as you and I noted in verse number 3, the time came that they wanted wine. They apparently had run out, or at least there was not sufficient amount. At that point, Mary took it upon herself to bring this information to Jesus. And thus, she pointed out to Jesus, they have no wine. Now, the Lord responded to her, with these rather interesting words, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Doesn't that highlight a number of things? And in fact, several lessons could be extracted from that one verse alone. There have been those who've accused Jesus of being disrespectful to His mother there. Nothing could be further from the truth. That society, you see, was a little bit different than ours. Although today we might not talk to our mother that way. That was, in fact, a kind of conversation or at least a kind of greeting, a directive that was not at all disrespectful then. But Jesus did quickly say, Mine hour is not yet come. Doesn't that indicate the Lord knew the purpose of His mission to this planet and He understood that which would be required of Him. And it was not yet time to set in motion those events that would lead ultimately to the cross. It is interesting, though, that in the verse that followed, Mary, the Lord's mother, appreciated that He was going to do something. And so she told the service, whatever He says to you, do it. Doesn't that highlight the extreme confidence that Mary had in her son? She already knew, isn't it true, that if anybody on earth knew that He was supernatural, it was her. She knew she'd never been with a man when she became pregnant. She knew that, in fact, it was not due to the seed of men alone that this Jesus came about. She knew He was the Son of God. And she testified to those servants, whatever He says to you, do it. I might suggest that those are wise words for us today. Whatever He says to you and I, we should with earnestness and we should with eagerness strive to do it. But back to our record of the text. We then are informed in verse number 6 that there were six stone water pots that were sitting at this location. And we are told that they were used for the purifying of the Jews. Now in the Old Testament, the Jews of course had various rites, R-I-T-E-S, of purification. That wasn't only true of the priests, but also of other of the Jewish community. And these of thus were used to ceremonially cleanse the Jews if they had desired to do so. 
they were going to be used for a different purpose this time. Each one of these, we're told, would contain two or three firkins of liquid. Now, at first sight, all of us probably are a bit uncertain as to what a firkin is, for we surely don't use that unit anymore. I've asked you to perhaps reflect a little bit on that as we come to this next slide, and we will talk a little bit about that firkin in this connection. If you do some research and try to appreciate the amount of that liquid, depending on which resource you consult, it seems to have been somewhere between nine gallons and ten and a half gallons. Now, again, so it's something, it would seem, between those extremes. And each one of these stone water pots would hold two or three of these firkins. It's easy enough then to conclude that if you sum the six water pots, we're talking about somewhere between 130 and 190 gallons of liquid. That's a fairly sizable amount of water. Between 130 and 190 gallons of water because each one, we're told, was filled to the brim. It's not that they were half full. It's not that there was only a small amount of liquid in each one. It's at that point we now observe this. Suddenly the scene shifts to verse number 7. Jesus again told them to fill the water pots. They did so up to the brim. And then the next verses say, Draw out and take to the governor of the feast. Now the servants knew from whence they'd gotten that water. And yet when the governor tasted how impressed he was. In fact, he commented rather quickly to the official at hand, You've saved the best until now. And with that... Don't you find verse 11 a bit revealing? May I read again that this beginning of miracles, highlight with me, this was the Lord's first miracle. I might suggest that there are sometimes you will encounter various books which supposedly or at least present ideas about other gospel accounts besides the four that we have in our Bibles. And sometimes in them you'll have a record of Jesus as a boy playing around with His miraculous abilities and causing various things to transpire. None of that ever happened. The book of John says this was the first miracle. There had been none before. The Lord never was, in fact, one to have taken a practice run. The first miracle was this one. It is with that in mind... Now the question comes, what about this wine that the Lord had turned into such from water? What kind of wine was it? I use that to perhaps assert the following. If you have conversations with someone about drinking alcoholic beverages in a social way, they will almost invariably turn to this and say, well, didn't Jesus turn water to wine? And so there's nothing wrong with me drinking some beer they'll quickly say, or nothing wrong with me just moderately having some wine with my supper. Is that the case? Was the wine that the Lord made intoxicating? We'll devote the remainder of our time to at least reflect upon that question and use the text as our guide. What kind of wine did Jesus make? May I offer to you a few suggestions? at least matters that will be a benefit to us as we give thought to that question. And the first one will be the words themselves. 
I've entitled it Word Studies. Today, you and I well know that when we employ the word wine, it's given that it involves alcoholic matters because that's what the word has come to mean for us in English. But may I ask that we with great care understand the following. That was not true of the Greek word that's translated wine. In fact, I've listed it for you, the primary Greek word throughout the pages of the New Testament that itself is translated wine is the word oinos, spelled in English O-I-N-O-S. You'll notice that simply by looking at the appreciations of that word, we quickly observe the following. That word can refer to beverages that are intoxicating, but it can also be used to refer to beverages which are not. In other words, you can't assume that the word wine then means intoxicating beverage because many times it doesn't. May I be quick to say that in fact the Hebrew Old Testament word also had that same characteristic related to it. In other words, all those passages in the Old Testament in which the word wine appears, you can't just assume that that it was intoxicating. I've listed you a few examples if you would consider them quickly with me. Let's look at the Old Testament ones first. For example, in Isaiah 65, 8, as well as Psalm 104, verse 15, there wine is stated to be a great blessing of God. And in fact, it is overwhelmingly given approval of God. Isn't that interesting? But could I invite you to note one other thing, especially the Isaiah 65 passage. It says that this wine that is such a great blessing is squeezed out of the grape. You and I would call it fresh grape juice, you see. It is that fresh, there has been nothing added to it. There has been nothing, you see, that would otherwise be allowed in time to bring it to any other state. There are other passages that use exactly the same word, but we find it condemned. So in those first two, overwhelming approval. But look at passages like Isaiah 28, 7 and Proverbs 20, verse 1. In both of those cases, wine is said to be something that should be avoided. It is something you see that one should not pursue because it's a mocker. It's raging and anybody deceived by it is not wise. So how does one interpret this? Some passages say wine is approved. Some passages say it's condemned. Isn't it clear? It's not talking about exactly the same characteristic. The Isaiah 28 passage highlights in great detail due to the behavior of these people. They were inebriated. We'd call them drunken. They were such that they had in fact allowed themselves to reach a state wherein their sensibilities had been lost or at least marred and their judgment was tarnished and they acted in ways that were embarrassing and in fact very hurtful. Now you and I know the kind of wine that makes that happen. It's not what we'd call grape juice. That kind of wine is intoxicating. It is that which has the characteristics you see of being alcoholic. First lesson then so far has been this. When you see the word wine in the Bible, don't assume it's alcoholic. Many times it's not. Not only that, let's go to the New Testament and see if the same thing doesn't appear. 
In Ephesians 5.18, wine is condemned. Do not be drunk with wine, it says. Clearly, God is against it there. But in other passages such as 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul, in fact, commended Timothy, drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. So here, God approves it. Here, He condemns it. May I suggest the same kind of thing? that the idea behind the the circumstances is the character of this wine. It's non-alcoholic in some instances, the ones God approves. It's alcoholic in the others which He condemns. To perhaps bring that thought even more fully to bear before us, that means we must always allow the context to help us appreciate which kind of this wine is under discussion. And quite often, there will be some clue in the passage that will greatly, greatly move toward that goal. These word studies have prepared us then to to proceed to the following. I've entitled it The Mind. So now that we know that the word wine on occasion is approved, but on other occasions it's condemned, we've learned we must allow the context to guide us in appreciating the nature of what's involved in a given text. The active ingredient in alcoholic beverage is ethyl alcohol. No, there's no disagreement about that. Those who study it, those who appreciate the chemistry of alcoholic beverage, we know it well. And a great amount of study is known about the effect that this particular thing has on the human body. I've asked you to notice at the top, it dulls the senses. It destroys cells in the brain, and it leads rather quickly to an impairment in judgment. That's understood. We know it. Perhaps you and I have seen it in the lives of someone close to us. We've seen behavior in response to drinking alcoholic beverages. Maybe it is in that connection. May I pause to note this? If alcoholic beverage dulls the senses... If it causes judgment to be impaired, may I ask, could anybody who would wish to please God and keep the arch enemy known as the devil at bay, would you want your senses dulled? Would you want your judgment impaired? It seems like that's just asking for trouble. It's in fact setting oneself up so that the devil will have an easier tactical and strategic approach to you. The devil is very crafty very clever, very subtle. And a number of verses of the Word of God highlight that truth. Didn't Paul, in fact, say that very thing in 2 Corinthians 11.3? Surely, with that as a background, the words of Paul are so very appropriate. Those that would please God must then be wise, Ephesians 5.15. We must be people of understanding. We must be those who use the sensibilities of our judgment, the character of our rationality and reason, to help us perceive the nature of events before us and to choose in such a way we do not fall into temptation. We do not succumb to sin. May I suggest, if we're inebriated... If we're drunken, it'll be no trouble for the devil to get us to do any number of things that not only will harm our influence for good, but it will in fact be very hurtful for ourselves and others. 
you'll notice next on that slide is a number of commandments to which I would point your attention. Isn't it true that the God of heaven has commanded of us that we be individuals who are in control of the nature of our bodies? That is to say, to the extent possible, we have to be in control of things. In Genesis 9, verses 20 and following, the first example in all the Bible we have of somebody becoming inebriated, it was none other than Noah. After being so faithful in regard to constructing the ark, withstanding the time aboard it, then after the waters were taken care of and the ark came to rest, the time came in days that were future from that time that Noah planted a vineyard and ultimately prepared that juice in such a way that it became alcoholic and he became drunken. You may remember he paraded in nakedness. Does that sound like a wholesome activity? And his sons had to try to take care to cover the nakedness. You see, Noah made a terrible sinful mistake. Maybe it's fair to say in that connection that 2 Peter 1.6 commands of us today to be in self-control, to be temperate, if you will. Question, would Jesus, the Son of God, have made 150 or 60 gallons of something that would lead people with that much available to behave in such a way that they would not only embarrass themselves, but ultimately have their minds sufficiently with judgment removed to act in a very unwholesome way. I just don't believe it. I don't believe the Lord would ever have, in fact, put people in that kind of position. But that's not all. The last question on that slide, isn't it true that a lot of times, especially when a person has drunk a sufficient amount of alcoholic beverage, you can be in a state to directly hurt other people? How often do we see it in car wrecks? A drunken driver takes the life of somebody innocent. Would Jesus have put anybody in a position to harm, to perhaps take innocent life, to act in that kind of way? Absolutely not. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, I will not be brought under the power of any. If only the human family could appreciate today. Alcohol, you see, is an addictive thing. That's why it's so hard for people many times to get off of it once they've gotten on it. It's powerful. Today, we then have learned about word studies and issues of the mind. Let's go a step further. What about the concept of a stumbling block? Remember, we're asking, what about the wine that Jesus made? As far as a stumbling block... Christians are absolutely commanded we may not place stumbling blocks before others. The charge that God has given to us is to encourage people toward heaven, to lead them in faith and verity. Didn't Paul say in 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Can a person thus imbibe alcoholic beverage and thus behave often in a very unwholesome way and claim to be an example of the believers in all of those six things that have just been asserted? An example in the way you talk, an example in the purity of life, 
an example in the way that you conduct yourself by way of living, an example in giving this to the Spirit, an example, you see, in faith. The two do not go together at all, do they? I've asked you to notice on this slide that Paul even mentioned at one point the subject admittedly there was eating meats that had been offered to idols. And Paul said, if by eating meat offered to an idol will cause my brother to stumble, I'll eat no meat as long as the earth stands. Now, alcoholic beverages are things which admittedly some people have more of a weakness concerning than others. It may be alcohol doesn't tempt you or me at all. But perhaps due to the way in which a person's family may have been, or perhaps due to what was the case in earlier days of that person's life, maybe it is more of a temptation to some. I hope that you and I would have the same impression that Paul did. Loving somebody else enough that we would never put before them a stumbling block, and surely alcohol could be this very thing. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, we are given the opposite circumstance. How strongly we're admonished to edify and strengthen others, not weaken them. Didn't Jude tell us that in Jude verse 20? Build up yourselves in the most holy faith. Jesus highlighted so strongly the impression that's required. Let your light so shine before men. I wonder how many people were converted to the Lord in a bar? I'd say not many. I wonder how many have been converted to the Lord holding a beer in their hand. I'd say not many. In fact, I can't name any. But the point might well be this. If we're encouraged to strengthen and to edify, surely alcohol's not going to help do it. If someone is in that way of life, we would need to assist them to get away from it. With all of that said, would Jesus have made 150 or perhaps 160 gallons of something that would ultimately weaken the faith of people rather than strengthen it? It's unfathomable. The Lord's life was about leading people to heaven, not putting them in positions where their senses and judgment was impaired. Number four, we may even be able to strengthen some of the matters by thinking along this line. So when a person drinks alcoholic beverages and does so in a social way, we now understand then that we are in a position to at least talk about intoxication directly. So what is the state of affairs in this? And does the Bible have any words that directly address such a situation? First of all, isn't it easy to observe this? There are many verses in the Bible which directly condemn drunkenness. Drunkenness will take you to hell. It's that simple. In Galatians 5, Paul lists a number of things and says, All of those guilty of these will not inherit heaven. That makes it pretty plain, and drunkenness is in the list. I would say that that's not the only place. There are a number of others. 1 Corinthians 6 perhaps to name one. So at that point, then it's easy to ask this. If drunkenness like that is condemned, someone may be quick to say, oh, but I just had one or two beers. I wasn't drunk. Really? Tell me the definition of, then of drunkenness. How is the Bible using that word? 
what is being involved in that connection? You'll notice that in none of those passages did it say how much liquid was imbibed. It just said drunkenness. And so it's up to us to understand what did the Bible mean when that word by the Holy Spirit was employed. I've asked you on that slide to note the next word, which may help us to answer this. In the same way that drunkenness is condemned, we have a host of passages that command those that would please God to be sober. Now, I know full well that today we use the word sober in a particular light. This person that was once drunken is now sober, meaning he or she is not as much under the influence of alcohol as he or she once was. But that's not what this word means. The original word that is thus translated in terms of these passages commanding sobriety or soberness, could you please go ahead and note the number of places it occurs? 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and 8. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, all of them. Do not merely suggest that we be sober, they command it. And now the issue, what does the word mean? You'll notice about the middle of the slide. To be sober identically means to not be under the influence of intoxication. To say that differently, and many Greek lexicographers put it in this form, to drink no wine. Hear me now, to drink no wine. Moderate drinking is condemned, you see, in the Bible just as much as overt, complete, what we'd call drunkenness. It's all drunkenness. And God says, do not be given to it. No wonder in that light. The next thought on that slide takes you to an inspired listing in 1 Peter 4. Could I direct your attention to verse number 3 of that fourth chapter of 1 Peter? For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. So Paul begins by saying, There was a time when those to whom he was writing were given to behaviors that were recognized as being behaviors of the Gentiles. Paul, can you give us a listing of these? I'm sorry, this is Peter. He mentions lasciviousness, lusts. And now the next three will be the ones that will be a part of our discussion. Excess of wine. Now that phrase, excess of wine, literally means to bubble over with it. So that's a person who's drunk a lot of it. Now today, then you and I might recognize that seems to conform to the way in which we today think about the word drunkenness. Peter said that's wrong, it's not good. But look at the next two elements in the list. Revelings is next. I've asked you to note the definition of revelings. That's a word which means or refers to feasts and drinking parties that often went late into the evening. And finally, he mentions banquetings. Now, I'd suggest that's another word that at least we're quite unfamiliar with in general. We don't use it very much, so may I define it? That initial word meant this. Drinking, a drinking party. Notice no reference to the amount. It had to do with the kind of beverage. You see, the Bible condemns overt drunkenness in the same way it does social drinking. 
all of it is outlawed. None of it is pleasing to God because nothing good is associated with it. It is at this point, Christians are thus commanded, are we not, to abstain from all appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 reminds us, At this point, we've looked at four ideas, or at least four appreciations of the passage. The next slide will invite you to look at the fifth and final one. And it has to do with asking the question, Jesus turned water to wine. We know that. The text says that He did. We've tried to discuss the nature of that wine that He produced or provided, and we've reached a rather definitive conclusion that it wasn't an alcoholic variety. But one more thing that might be noted. It requires us putting together two of the observations we've made. First, the Lord turned water to wine. And yet the Old Testament, the law beneath which the Lord lived, it spoke against alcoholic beverage. Remember, the Lord condemned it. In passages such as Proverbs 20, verse 1, and Isaiah 28, verses 1 to 7. With that being said... Could Jesus have made alcoholic beverage and not have been guilty of sin? No, He couldn't have. He would have violated the law of Moses if He had done so. And yet Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus never sinned, not even once. Doesn't that then mean that if that had been condemned and He had turned water to alcoholic beverage and led others to involve themselves in imbibing it, then he would have been guilty of endorsing what was wrong and he would have been guilty of sin. Jesus did not turn water to alcoholic beverage. He turned water into wine. And that wine was, was not alcoholic. One final thing to observe is verse number 10 of our text. And at that point, the lesson will be yours. Verse number 10, and some are quick to observe this, so may I read it, and then let's spend a moment to discuss it, and then we'll close our lesson. Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. And many will thus say, well, look, it says well drunk. These people were sloshed in the language you and I might be tempted to use today. That's not what that word means. That phrase, well drunk, often in the Word of God, makes use to the amount. It makes use, you see, not to the quality, but to the quantity. In fact, we often use it in other passages in the Bible that same way as in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so I'd ask you to note at the bottom, the quality of what was produced was what was so great. The governor of the feast tasted this and recognized immediately the quality of what the Lord had produced. And remember, he thus commended the official over the marriage feast in light of the fact you've saved the best till now. That's what, of course, Jesus made. He always does what's right and he always does what's best. He does all things well in the words of Mark 7, verse 37. With all of that said, let's close our lesson then like this. We do not find in the Word of God any justification for allowing a person who would please God to engage in social drinking. 
It is not that which leads oneself or others nearer in faith, nearer in power, nearer in pleasing character to God. It only moves one further, hurts one's influence, impairs one's judgment, and causes one to behave in a way that's not pleasing to God. Today, as we think then about the Word of God, may we never allow someone to convince us, well, didn't Jesus make alcoholic beverage so I can drink a beer if I want to? The conclusion does not follow because the premise itself is not right. As we close this lesson today, perhaps the issue that would face you and me is not one connected to our study today. But whatever the issue that would cause me or you to be separated from God, we need to take care of it. We need to make repentance of it and approach God in the way that He has indicated, and He will forgive it, and we will be able to enjoy the precious right standing with our Heavenly Father. Today, if anyone in this assembly would perhaps wish to become a Christian, maybe upon realizing the nature of life and the brevity of it, You'd like to make sure that all is well with your soul. We want you to know that the Lord loves you. He went to the cross to die for you. And He is beckoning you. Whosoever will, let Him come and take of the water of life freely. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. If you'd like to take of the water of life today, you could become a newborn New Testament Christian. You've got to believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized, and we'd be delighted to assist you. If you at one time have known the precious life of a faithful Christian, but you've chosen perhaps gradually over time to walk in a different way, a way that has brought shame and reproach to you, to Jesus, to His name, and to the church, you can make it right. He still loves you. He will be happy to forgive you. If we could help you do that today, it'll begin with you repenting of those matters and make confession to the extent that you need to do it. If we can then pray to God on your behalf, we'd be honored. As we close this lesson, the Lord's invitation is extended. If anyone would wish at this time and convenience to come, it's a fine opportunity, and we encourage it while together we stand and while we sing.